How can we design for trust? What is the most transformative force in healthcare? On today's episode, you're going to learn how students at a design class at Stanford started Nora Health. I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? We have two guests for today. They are Edith Elliott and Shahed Alam. They are both co-founders and co-CEOs of Nora Health. It's an international nonprofit that improves health outcomes and strengthens health systems by equipping patients and their loved ones with essential caregiving skills. They work across 300 plus facilities in India and Bangladesh. What Nora Health does is that they turn hospital hallways and waiting rooms into classrooms in order to deliver fit for purpose, high quality training for post-surgical, post-delivery and general care. Then they follow up with families at home using mobile messaging technologies. To date, Nora's health programs have reached nearly 2 million patients and caregivers. Nora Health was named a 2022 TED Audacious Project grantee, and they are the recipient of the 2022 Skoll Award for Social Innovation. Thank you for supporting the Design Lab podcast. You do this by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and giving us five stars. We almost have 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts. Help us to get there. Give us a comment on Apple Podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. In the show notes, you will find a link to our newsletter that our producer, Rob Puglisi, creates just for you. Now, here's my conversation with Edith and Shahed. Edith and Shahed, welcome to Design Lab. I'm a huge fan of Nora Health. Been just fascinated by your model of working. And for our listeners who may not know about Nora Health, can you describe what Nora Health is and how it works? Sure. Thank you for so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. It's always fun to get to talk about the work in this in this way. So at Nora, we focus on training and engaging family members in the care of their loved ones. We do this in health systems and hospitals across India and Bangladesh at the moment. And really at the core of what we do is helping these health systems prepare family members and patients so that they can, one, be an active resource at the point of care in the hospital while their loved one is receiving care. And then two, be better prepared, of course, to act as the primary caregiver once they return home. We work in maternal and newborn care. We work in cardiology and cardiac surgery, general inpatient. And really what we see across the board, across all of the condition areas that we work in is the same theme. And that is that family members are a compassionate available and very willing resource that is sitting there right next to the patient. But right now they're untapped. They're not being supported and given the adequate resources that they deserve. So that's very briefly what we do. And I love one of the taglines of Nora Health that says, we are all caregivers. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to the fact that we all experience at one time or another Caregiving, whether whether it's at the patient or or someone taking care of a loved one, or someone in the health profession, and I think each of these perspectives kind of is one that we are 
looking to support through our work and just, you know, kind of brings brings us back to why why we're doing this. I think one of the things that's been really easy, honestly, about working on this, growing this model, scaling this, is that anytime we go into a meeting, you know, even if it's with the busiest government stakeholder, once they listen and and kind of take a moment to pause and, and think about the model, they think about, you know, themselves and, and their roles with caring for their loved ones. And and oftentimes that's really the most important way for us to to be able to convey the the importance of it is is that shared experience. So you don't necessarily need to have a medical background in order to be a caregiver. Exactly. Exactly. We're all doing it and kind of that love that we have for our, our loved ones, our friends, our families is what we as an organization are trying to help support and help the health system support moreover. And that's something that that really is universal. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there are so many things that as as a loved one, as a caregiver, whether you be a family or a friend, there are things that you can do oftentimes more effectively or as effectively as trained healthcare professionals. <laughs> and there, of course, are a whole slew of things that our respected doctors, nurses, and healthcare professionals have to handle. But we've identified there are areas where family and caregivers play such a critical and important role and oftentimes are not recognized for that role and are not supported and given the tools and the skills training that they need and deserve in so many ways to play that that critical function and that critical role. Can you give us some case examples of this? I mean, are caregivers doing laceration repairs for or you know <laughs> no. what like what no, what, no, what, no. What, what, are, what are they doing? You know, so if you walk into one of the healthcare facilities where we work, you'll see caregivers, you know, you'll see families sleeping in the hallway, surrounding the patient, and they're tasked with getting medications, with, you know, helping the patient with safe physical therapy exercises, with getting food in many cases, or changing the bed sheets. And what we see is that, you know, typically in a hospital setting, and this is particularly acute in a place like India or Bangladesh, where healthcare resources are so strained, you're lucky as a patient if you get a very brief discharge summary with the healthcare professional, and then you're sent on your way. And your family or your caregiver, the person who's going to be supporting you in your recovery, may or may not be there with you at the point of that discharge summary. Mm. And so that means you're getting all of this information in a really rushed fashion. And throughout your hospital stay, you were expected to learn your physical therapy exercises. Let's take like cardiac surgery. Mm -hmm. You were expected to learn about, you know, how to recognize if a wound is infected. You're expected to kind of understand all of these things so that you can be prepared when you go home. But as we know, and this is the case for you or me or someone in, in another part of the world, you immediately forget the majority of the information that's given to you by a doctor or a healthcare professional in that moment. And then of the you know, maybe 20% that you remember, you only remember half of it correctly. Yeah. And also the discharge work that we right. give is so bogus. A lot of times there's like 20 right. pages right. of pre-printed right. stuff and I'm killing trees all the time, giving discharge work right. to my patients. And I go, honestly, I think 90% of it is bogus. Right. And I mean, like, and then put yourself in the position of someone who doesn't read or write in that language. Mm. What are you supposed to do with that information? And so what we see is families are, you know, if given the right information in the right way at the right time, 
a family member can make sure that the patient is doing their physical therapy exercises and practicing those and ready with questions at that discharge moment. A family member can support in looking out for warning signs that a doctor or a nurse like slurred speech. I'm going to notice if my husband is slurring his speech, if I know to look out for that before a doctor or a nurse likely would. And so there are big and small things that caregivers can do both at the bedside in a hospital setting, but also when you return home that, yes, of course, trained healthcare professionals can absolutely do. But in like basic hygiene, for example, as well, making sure that you understand how a wound can become infected and what to look out for. These are all things. Shad, I don't know if you can think of other specific examples. That's what pops into my mind. Those are great. I, I guess just in terms of how we think about what we are teaching people, it does come down to some basic elements for any type of patient that we look at. First is is warning signs and making sure that that the family member knows what the specific warning signs are for their loved ones and can recognize and also know what to do when when a warning sign comes up. And that's, of course, specific to the type of patient, but also in general, something we train throughout. And then some basic stuff around diet, activity, and treatment adherence. So those are those are kind of the fundamental pieces that go into go into the training and of course get in terms of the specific type of patient. And how is the training? Is it video based? Is it in-person training that happens? Yeah. So the the training is something that we felt happens best and we've seen happens best at the point where people are thinking about their health, they are engaged within the health system, and they're, they have the, the time and, and also they're kind of a captive audience. And that means in the wards, hospital wards, in the waiting areas, within healthcare facilities, while a patient is recovering from typically some sort of a treatment or maybe a surgery, that's where the training happens first. Mm-hmm. So it happens in person. It typically happens in groups. So there is a community aspect to getting this information and being able to be in a group with other people where you can ask questions, share stories, and otherwise just have that support network. And again, all of this is happening while people are typically spending their time waiting and lying on the floor and wondering what's going to happen. And so it really, you know, kind of provides this information at a time where where people have the time and and they're, you know, especially wondering about this. That's really the the first point and what we consider as kind of an onboarding to the overall training experience that we have. The second part of it is is something that happens over over people's phones. And since we primarily work in India now, Bangladesh, one of the tools that we have that we're trying to leverage is WhatsApp. Most everyone who has data on their phone will that will be the first thing that they will have on their phone. And what WhatsApp allows us to do is to save a bunch of trees and and not have a lot of tens of pages of of printouts being shared, but rather videos and and you know bite side messages that are coming in over a schedule that is relevant for the patient. So you know one, two, three days post discharge, there are certain messages that go a week out, and you know so on and so forth. And that also allows us to send videos as well and not just text. And what WhatsApp also allows us to do is to have a, a two-way 
communication. So once you have a nudge or a reminder, what we find is people then engage and they might have a simple question. And and that question, what we've found is that about 95% of these questions that we get are things that have been asked before. So it's something that we can answer mm. pretty simply through an FAQ. And the vast majority of these even are mostly around health advice, things like diet, exercise, can I eat this? Can I do this? Mm. We can provide that evidence-based guidance on, on these things. And so it's partially in person in, you know, at the point of care and then partially over over the phone. And that's where kind of the long-term follow-up aspect happens. I want Nora Health in my hospital. I mean, I feel like this model can be used and implemented in the U.S. healthcare system. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, we agree. <laughs> you know, we've all, <laughs> you're not the first person to say that. And you know, we we actually initially, when we were starting Nora, we did some work with U.S. health systems, but our ability to innovate and move quickly and test and then iterate again was it was much easier to do that in India than it was in the very bureaucratic, expensive and slow moving system that is the U.S. healthcare uh-huh. system. But we we absolutely believe that this is something that can and should be a fundamental part of healthcare delivery anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. We believe that this should be the standard of care. And part of our objective and part of our calling through this work is to gather the body of evidence, gather the, you know, the tools and best practices and package them in a way that other health systems can be inspired to do this. That over the next several years is going to be a massive priority for us. In addition to, you know, the scale and somewhat audacious goals that we have over the next, say, five-year period, we also are hoping to package this and build something that any health system, any government, any individual whether you're a physician or a nurse or someone who's in hospital administrator could take and replicate within your own setting and do it better than we could say with our boots on the ground in your health setting. And you've had tremendous impact. I mean, 2022 has been a great year for NorHealth. You've won awards from TED and Skoll. What sort of favorite outcome measure, whether quantitative or qualitative, do you like to tell people about the impact of of NorHealth? I think... (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting to think about our favorite impact indicator, but but I really love that framing. I think one that feels really clear to us in terms of what it means in terms of health outcomes in the health system is readmissions. Mm-hmm. And that's something that that we are trying to prevent preventable readmissions and have people access care early on that is maybe at an outpatient setting or over telemedicine or over our WhatsApp program before having it get to the point where it needs to be a hospital admission. And that's something that we've seen across several patient condition areas that we work in actually coming down by by more than 50%. 50%? Yeah, more than that's 50%. That's huge. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, th- so that's something that we feel, one, it gives a, a really hard indicator and one that is is measurable, especially in the systems that we work in, there's not a lot of great administrative data or follow-up data. So, so simple indicators like that can be useful for us to understand then, you know, upstream, downstream, what are the health outcomes that we are we're actually impacting. That's favorite in terms of being clear. I think in terms of the the true the true impact of what happens, I think one of the places where we've been surprised 
is that we see trust in the healthcare system increasing. And why that's important to us is that, you know, that trust, that bi-directional trust between the healthcare mm-hmm. provider, typically nurses that we work with and the patients and the families is something that can be really difficult to obtain in some of these fairly, you know, low resource and oftentimes chaotic environments. And I think when you start from a place of trust, then many other things follow and and then some of the other, you know, outcomes that that we also care about follow. But sometimes with with a lot of programs and a lot of interventions, I think, you know, we don't we don't necessarily think about trust, but I do think that with our program and just creating an opportunity for people to connect in a way that otherwise maybe they wouldn't. You know, like what we're kind of trying to reimagine is the discharge teaching moment in many ways, right? And Mm -hmm. that can oftentimes be a very rushed and very, you know, kind of last thing on people's mind and then the healthcare provider's agenda before someone goes out the door. And even for the patient and the family, you know, they're thinking about what's coming next. And so if we reimagine that and create more of an environment that a connective environment that then promotes trust, then then we see a lot of good things follow. Edith, I don't know if you had yeah. any other. Well, <laughs> trust and compassion, you know, creating a more compassionate, this is one that obviously is very difficult to measure, but creating a more compassionate system and exchange, we've seen, yes, then the domino impact of that is all of these pretty remarkable health outcomes that you can measure, but that's ultimately is the impact that excites me as well. And I love a quote that you said, you said the most transformative force in healthcare is love. That is so great. It's love is probably the most powerful technology in healthcare, but it's something that we can't quantify, but we all want to feel love when we're healing. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not something that, you know, I, I'm not a trained medical professional, but knowing many, including Shahed, it's not something that you're encouraged to, it's not one of the muscles you're encouraged to necessarily exercise at the point that you're delivering care for so many reasons and for good reason. But we also know that, you know, there are studies that show that someone just holding your hand as you're recovering in a hospital makes a huge difference in your outcome. So thinking about how we can leverage the love that surrounds a patient And of course, this is not the case in every health system. We have a lot of patients here in the U.S. certainly who do not show up at the hospital with a caregiver, but Mm -hmm. we believe there are creative ways to create that ecosystem around patients. Yeah. And yeah, love is a pretty, pretty phenomenal force if tapped into in the right ways and at the right time. And that's where the design piece becomes Mm. exciting and, and interesting. Well, speaking about design, there's a comic of you both in a book called Creative Acts for Curious People. It's written by Sarah Stein Greenberg, who was a previous guest on the Design Lab podcast, episode 82. I love this. I love this comic. And (laughs) she describes the origin story for Nora Health. So you all had actually met at a class at Stanford D School when you were graduate students, a class called Design for Extreme Affordability. And I just learned from our previous conversation that David Janko, who I'm a big fan of, was one of the instructors for that class. So tell us about how how you all connected. Well, f- first, everyone should get the book, opening yes. chapters, so you could read the comic, which is so cool. <laughs> yeah, so we were, Edith and I did not know each other before <laughs> landing up in that class. and But I think both of us and our two other co-founders, 
Jesse and Katie were all excited about this concept that I believe was new to all of us, human-centered design and the potential that it had to kind of look at things in a different way. I personally had been in public health research and those sorts of fields for some time. And, and one of the things that I felt was missing from the work that, that I got to do was the perspective of the people that we were actually trying to serve at the end of the day through all these interventions that we were coming up with. And so design, to me personally, just felt like this really simple process that that just focused in on the core of what we were actually trying to do in the first place. And so I think we all came in to this course with that excitement. And we got to do a couple projects. And it culminated in the big long project that brought the four of us together, where we were randomly assigned into a group of four. And I think kind of felt at that point that we found our professional soulmates and, you know, got really wacky and stressed out at the same time about <laughs> doing well in this course. <laughs> and we're given a, a really exciting partner and prompt to do something in, in a health system in, in Bangalore, where I'm calling in from today to figure out how to improve care. And, and the rest is kind of history. Edith, I can tag you to, to share a little bit more maybe on that trip. Sure. So yeah, we, you know, we were given the opportunity to travel to India again, along with this remarkable partner who opened up their hospital and, and gave us an unbelievable sandbox to prototype and play in. And the prompt that was given to us was one that won't come of much surprise, you know, that their hospitals were incredibly busy. There were more patients than they could keep up with. Doctors and nurses felt as though they didn't have the time and capacity to provide adequate post-care instruction. The system was just slammed in so many ways. And at the same time, you know, there were family members. And so there were questions about what to do with the extra humans who were taking up space in the hospital. And what we found when we visited and did, you know, multiple interviews and empathy work with patients, families, everyone from the hospital administrators, you know, the CEO of the hospital to the cleaning staff to security guards, what we found was that, you know, everything we've now discussed, you have this incredibly capable, able, willing, compassionate resource, but the system was not set up to involve and engage that resource. Instead, they were being pushed out. There was mm -hmm. a security guard to physically keep them out in certain moments. There were you know, there are visiting hours and times when someone is or is not allowed to be there. There's not comfortable space for people. And so along the way, we we met a nurse who was doing these pre-op sessions for patients primarily, but of mm -hmm. course you'd welcome in families if and when possible. His name is Anand Kumar and he now is our director of training. But at the time he was a nurse in this hospital and doing this remarkable work of preparing people for what they were about to undergo. These were cardiac surgery patients for the most part. Mm. And through him, we ran multiple prototypes and through other remarkable nurses and really did a lot of deep listening to understand the challenges the nurses were having. You know, they were answering the same question bed to bed to bed over and over again, giving the same information in a repeated fashion. And that becomes tedious, of course. And then you get frustrated, right? You get frustrated when someone asks you a question for the third, fourth time. And so the reason he had started running these classes was to, one, cut down on that and two, just, just prepare people so that they weren't going into surgery completely blind and not knowing, one, what to expect going in, but then two, mm -hmm. what to expect coming out. 
And so we we just started building from there and it was one prototype after another. We went back to to Stanford, back to school and would send prototypes their way and and just iterated, iterated. And can you describe the prototypes? Because the comic was <laughs> a funny job yeah. at doing that. Oh my goodness, there was a whole range, but you know, I mean, there were videos starring. We we sent an email out across the university looking for Canada speakers. That's the language spoken in the hospital at the primary language book in the hospital. So we got these Canada speakers to these students to star in these videos that were, you know, filmed on our cell phones that then ended up being put in front of patients. There was a whole range. We we did, you know, funny voice messages. So that's no cost at all. Like no, zero cost. Film it on a phone. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. No, all of the early stuff was no cost. And actually, you know, that was, we did not plan to start an organization. Our hope was to create a system that we could leave with this hospital, this one hospital that would be impactful and sustainable for them. So it had to be mm. low to no cost, mm. ideally no cost. It had to solve a massive problem. And it had to, you know, our nightmare was for it to just disappear and to not be helpful. So we, we were intentionally designing something that had to be sustainable and cost next to nothing mm-hmm. and continue running after we went back to our lives. Shahed was going back to medical school. Edith was, you know, I was still in school and then had plans post-school what I thought my career would look like. And so this was not, this is not in the plan. <laughs> and, and the snowball started to roll and slowly the, you know the the prototypes really caught on we had at one point i remember our co-founder katie painting this picture of families lining up people lining up around the room where the session was taking place this was before we were doing the sessions in the wards which is where they happen in the most for the most part now mm-hmm. and you know lines of people and some of the people who had just heard that this was coming they weren't even patients at the hospital they had just heard that this session was happening and and it come because other people in their community were had gone through cardiac issues so that it was fascinating to watch the demand really explode and over time obviously our prototypes had to become a bit more sophisticated yeah. <laughs> but the hospital came to us it was you know they were seeing the benefit they wanted to take it across their their network and slowly but surely it just expanded so did you have this idea at Stanford before going to the hospital of training caregivers or did you have a different plan or idea of the problem that you wanted to solve? We had a very different plan. (laughs) So the initial plan was, was to support the hospital with better patient flow techniques. So Katie, I I don't remember, was she a fluid mechanics engineer as an undergrad? She knew how to use that like fancy like flow software and create simulations and stuff. So we went in with like some of these simulations of, (laughs) of people flowing through a system and felt like hospital layouts where we were moving things around. And within, you know, like a few hours of being there, we realized that maybe that wasn't the right, (laughs) right issue to be focusing on. And, and we quickly turned our attention to, to the actual people who made up that crowd and and again the vast majority being being the family members how did design help you to pivot because that must have been a little bit maybe a little bit scary or nerve-wracking to go hey we came in with this initial plan on improving flow in a hospital then we're like that's not going to work no i think that's I can't call myself an expert on design but (laughs) the part that i i truly appreciate is 
one where you start with empathy, you focus on the people that you're actually serving. And and two, you're not trying to champion a specific solution. It's a process to get towards a better place. And it's easy to abandon ideas that then, you know, don't fit in that framework. And and that's what you called iteration. And I think being able to say that this this idea is not working, let's go with something else and let's, you know, go with what people are actually saying and, and wanting and feeling and being able to let that be the ultimate guide. Yeah, that's what we found most helpful. Yeah. And we, you know, we always say we didn't come up with this idea. We listened and put pieces together and mm-hmm. acted as a a sounding board and observed. And again, I, I agree with Shahid. I, I'm also not a design expert by any means, but do love the process that it encourages you to step back and be an observer and look for patterns and mm. help to put those puzzle pieces together. And really, we did not go in with an idea. We went in with a set of tools that helped us get to an idea mm. eventually. It's almost, you know, more fulfilling to be wrong in that at yeah. that point. Yeah. You know, that door is closed. Let's let's try the next one. And yeah, I think just being being tied to the need more than the mm. solution is, is I guess the the whole point of it. Mm. Yeah. And these are muscles we continue to exercise as an organization today. You know, at a certain point, yes, you have a service offering or products that you feel confident work, but as we move into new geographies, and I don't just mean new countries, but state to state in India or type of hospital Mm. to, you know, as we go from hospitals to clinics to different settings, we're constantly having to iterate and think about, you know, the the main concept might be the same, but the how Mm. has to constantly evolve. Now, this went from a class project to a global nonprofit organization. Did you have to delay or give up some opportunities in order to do this? Because you didn't have this plan to go, hey, we're going to take this class at Stanford and start Nora Health. Shahid, this one's for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is your... No, I think we're... <laughs> your well, life I can was explain, I can far explain more what delayed. Yeah, referring to. Many more but... U-turns than mine, I think. <laughs> no, but Edith was the rock. No. It was all together while we were all U-turning through but no, I mean, I think there, this was not part of the plan. We did this as a what we thought was an interesting project. And it was like a passion project that we were handing over to one another as we progressed through our studies, you know, spending our, our summers and, you know, whatever free period of time I would have quickly became a terrible student because I would find myself halfway across the world in India when I should have actually been, and, you know, been at Stanford Hospital. <laughs> but, but I think all, all things... You said like we kept finding kind of, you know, proof points throughout, whether it was, you know, initially seeing a line out the door where families were were demanding this to, you know, having our hospital partners say, let's let's do this across more wards and more hospitals. Let's do it across the whole network in, you know, across all of India. And then realizing that that there was actually appetite and that an organization or, you know, a group of people working on this and supporting health systems actually actually made sense that health systems may not initially be able to to do this themselves and rather you know it makes sense for us to focus on it and perhaps build an organization to to then then support that and so i think all of those things you know helped i think each of us gain confidence in in the fact that this was this was something worthwhile and and you know worthwhile for us to work on and to create an organization and for me personally, what Edith was referring to is that I 
Definitely, you know, I took a, a leave of absence during medical school to initially start this, which was supposed to be three months, and that leave of absence turned into three years. And so then, at the end of those three years, I, you know, was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta go back and, you know, move back from India back to to the U.S. and finish med school and get on with life. But the work was calling, and and I think, you know, after I finished med school, what I what I realized was that. You know, I had this amazing, you know, we had built this amazing opportunity for impact that was truly unique. And I wanted to to go further down that path. So I moved back to India and, you know, the rest is history. And this is, this is life for us. So we were just talking about this earlier today that, I don't know, we just feel so grateful for, you know, kind of all of the proof points along the way and all of the people who've supported us to, to make this a reality. Amazing. My last question would be for our listening audience, if one of them were to visit you, where would you take them to eat? Okay, so visit us in, I'm guessing, in India, not where, visit me up here in northern Michigan, where we're... <laughs> wherever you choose. No, it let's do India. It's way more India. fun. <laughs> no, India is way more fun. Way, way more fun. Okay, well, the first thing that, that came to my mind, Shahid, was that we would have folks visit our office first and foremost, right? And meet the team and see the folks behind the incredible work. And we would host a Pani Puri happy hour. So their Pani Puri is a Indian street snack. And there's a gentleman who makes the best Pani Puri in Bangalore, according to our team, come up and do Pani Puri for the team and visitors. So that's what first popped into my mind, Shahid. That'd be the appetizer. That'd be the appetizer. (laughs) And then, then the, and then for the main <laughs> event, we will take you somewhere that is is probably a surprise. We'll go to one of our first partner hospitals, which is a cardiac facility in Bangalore called Jayadeva Institute. And they have really incredible clinical services. They, I think, do some, you know, incredible number of cardiac procedures, including surgeries daily. But what they also have is one of the best dosas you'll get in Bangalore. And we would go to the canteen and, and have a yummy dosa there. It's Love incredible. It. And what's uh, funny about this is that the dosa is my favorite food of these. Like I'm that is the first place that I tell people to go visit. And Pani Puri, I don't even really like, but Shahid loves it. It's <laughs> funny that my mind went to Pani Puri Shahid. <laughs> so went to the dosa. <laughs> the party. Yeah. <laughs> Where... It'd be a fun party. I come love one, dosas. Can you describe what it is for people who don't know what a dosa is? Oh, yes. So it's it's kind of like a crepe. So it's made with fermented rice batter and over like a cast iron skillet, essentially. And it's a flat crepe-like thing. And, and it, you, inside of it, and it has tons and tons of ghee, which is clarified butter. And then there's this masala inside of it, which is like potatoes and all sorts of goodness and spices and other vegetables and you eat it with chutney. <laughs> it's the best. So and this good. hospitals is, and they do this, what's called a paper dosa. So it's really thin and crispy and huge, really long. And it's just delicious. So is Nora Health a billion dollar company or do you still rely <laughs> on donations to support oh, the organizations? If you do, oh, how can man. people donate? Well, no, we are not a billion dollar company. We are a nonprofit and do rely on philanthropic support and the incredible support of of individuals and foundations. You can donate through our website, which I believe you're putting in 
in it the show is, notes. Yep, I put it in show Norahelp.org. And we, yeah, we're, we're just always so grateful. We feel a tremendous amount of responsibility for any and every dollar that is contributed and that is put into our trust. And thank you for asking. We're yeah. grateful for that. Well, I will personally donate too through from the design lab. So, so if I'm donating listeners, you could donate uh, it's a great, great organization. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'll go on now and, and donate to, oh, to your organization. Thank you. thank you. It was so amazing having you both on the show. I know you're very busy. I appreciate the time. I could ask you a thousand more questions, but Shahid, you probably need to sleep and Edith, you need to get on with your day. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This is this is a lot of fun. We're really grateful you um, found us and brought us on. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is really fun. I hope you enjoy that conversation and go to Twitter and Instagram. There you could follow Nora Health. Their handle is N-O-O-R-A-H-E-A-L-T-H. Reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. The music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.